So this morning, we uh, our focus is on Enneagram 8, and Charity, our pastor, is a dominant Enneagram 8. So we are interviewing her to kind of see her perspective, how it lives out in her life, and um, how she came to find it, and all that stuff. So uh, Charity, let's start with, how did you come to find uh, your dominant number as an 8? So my journey was a little different. Um, I... Uh, was, I remember hearing about the Enneagram a long time ago, but then was kind of reintroduced maybe about four or five years, four years ago or so. And so I took the, I was doing some reading. I took the online test with the Enneagram Institute. And for me, three and eight were pretty much tied. They'll tell you if you have two that are, that have similar characteristics, and it really depends on motivation as to kind of where you land. Um, at the time, I was in a work situation where my eightness, um, things that um, are strengths that I bring, um, were seen as a problem. And um, sometimes we're just in systems where that don't fully appreciate us. And that was where I was. Um, at the time, I knew I wasn't the problem. And so when I looked at eight, I was like, oh, these are all the complaints they have about me. They see some of these things as negative. And so I decided, nope, that's not me because I'm not the problem here. I must be a three. And so for years, I was would tell you I was an Enneagram three. About a year ago, um, you know, the world was on fire. I was doing a lot of preaching about our current events. Um, uh, about racism, about our power structures changing, about politics and caring for our neighbors and wearing masks and, you know, being concerned more about the collective uh, population and seeing God's image in people and kind of was getting a little fiery with some of my sermons. And one night at dinner, uh, when I was having dinner at the Hollands, my sister said, I don't think you're a three, I think you're an eight. And, um, I remembered that test that had the eight and the three the same. And so I went back, um, I read all the descriptions of eights. I started listening. I kind of spent a week because one of the things about eights is like when we take hold of something, like we just, we just get really intense with it. So for about a week, I um, took, uh, read, I listened to podcasts. I actually took an online class from somebody that a fellow Enneagram 8 suggested uh, on eights and relationships um, that was really helpful. And uh, we were also in a pandemic, so there wasn't a whole lot else to do. So I kind of focused on this. But the more that I read and the more that I learned, there was a part of it that um, felt like I was kind of coming home, that it was a description of how I understood myself, but also some of the feelings I had about how other people um, saw me or misunderstood me or some of the patterns. It just, it felt, um, it felt, uh, again, like I was coming home to a part of myself, um, for the good and the bad, uh, or the, not to give values to it, but the strengths and the, the shadow side or the, the side of things that I need to be working on or just to help people understand me. So that is my journey to understanding. I was an Enneagram eight. Yeah. I have uh, quite a few friends who at first thought they were one number, and then after more in-depth uh, reflection and reading, um, thought that they may be a different one. So mm -hmm. as an Enneagram 8, what is your superpower? What is something good that you bring to the world, some 
something really good about the way you interpret the world, see the world, um, any of that? When eights are in a healthy place, they uh, can be really fearless. Um, they can be brave. Um, they are going to be, um, I like to think that I see potential and possibility. So even if I'm describing the negative and what's wrong with something, it is because I see that it can be better, that I can see that it can be more. Um, that's always not understood that way. Um, I remember in one of our Bible studies, I was talking about church or something. And um, I remember that your dad was like, oh, I'm really depressed now. And I was like, oh no, like I say all that to say, I think I think it could be more. I see all kinds of unlimited possibilities. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, I, that I think is one of our superpowers. Um, we are very protective of those uh, that we see as our own. And that may be not just um, our family, but people in the world that we feel um, responsible for, whatever. Um, and um, I think when I, when we wrote this question and I started thinking about what I would answer for this one, um, the, the thing that came to mind was, a, I think I told part of this story that um, when I was in New York, um, working in Manhattan as a summer missionary years ago now, um, we, uh, the youth were doing like, a, that were working, uh, we had youth that came in that did volunteer work and um, they were out, they had left their stuff and were out prayer walking the neighborhood that we were in on the um, Upper West Side, which is a really nice area of New York. Well, somebody wandered in and uh, a gentleman wandered in and was walking around their stuff. And at first I thought he was somebody who worked there. So I was really keeping a close eye on him. But then he just kind of wandered out of the building and I, I went after him and chased him down the street, uh, this uh, down West 72nd. So it was a really nice part of town. It's not, you know, um, but I chased him down and I made him come back with me to the comedy club that we were meeting at to, and made him empty his pockets because I didn't believe that he hadn't harmed my people. Um, at one point, a cop saw this altercation we were having in the street. And <laughs> this gentleman was afraid. He was afraid of me. And I think if he had not been afraid of me, I probably would have backed off a lot sooner. But the cop pulled up and was like, ma'am, is everything okay? Um, and I was like, yes, I've got this. And I sent the cop on his way. I didn't explain what was going on. And then I brought the guy back to the comedy club. And so um, that I think, is an Enneagram, that's an Enneagram eight um, right there that will chase somebody down because they're um, afraid they've hurt their own, but also tells the cop like, I've got this. Um, that may have been really, really stupid, but um, that's the superpower of an Enneagram eight. Um, at the first question, you mentioned something about shadow side. Um, so how has learning about the Enneagram and kind of learning about yourself as an eight helped you see some of your blind spots or some of your shadow sides, some of the some of the areas that you can grow in that you naturally um, kind of avoid. So a common problem of eights, especially female eights, is that we are misunderstood <laughs> um, and that um, it's common for people to be intimidated or just not feel comfortable because 
we don't see our role as making everybody feel comfortable around us. That's part of how we exist in the world, but that's also a problem in, <laughs> in relationships and work relationships. And so being mindful of how others see me um, helps me to know um, if I wanna get my message across, I need to be mindful of how it's being heard and what can be heard and what can be seen. Um, so like in preaching, um, I, since naming this is helpful for me to, to not just feel like it needs to be this prophetic kind of pushing word, um, but also that we have the message of love and grace that runs through everything. Um, because I know it exists. Um, I believe in it. Um, but I need to make sure that message comes across just as much as um, let's go out and change the world. Um, I know that when I'm stressed, I go to five and that can be a high thing. Like if something comes along that I don't, a decision I have to make or a change of beliefs, like I, um, I just, I learn all that I can about something. Um, eights have obsessive kind of behavior around things. Um, so that's also something that I have to be mindful of. Um, if I'm going to do something, sometimes it's like, you know, why just do it a little bit when you could do it a whole lot. Um, and that's not always healthy either. Um, but uh, for that going to five in a stress, it, it's like a retreat for me to learn, but I also know that I can, um, I can get obsessed about a topic or about understanding people or a situation. And it becomes, uh, it's, I become so inward um, in processing it that it's, I go to an unhealthy place um, and even can close myself off to other people um, when, I, um, when I get really stressed. So knowing that is uh, that processing it and analyzing it is not always a helpful thing, that there is a barrier that I cross when it becomes helpful. Um, I struggle with not going all in on everything. And so learning balance and self-care um, is really important for me and learning how to harness my energy when I am focused on something so that I can have like big blocks of time to relax or even little pockets of time to relax. Um, I know that I'm hard to lead um, and I work to be affirming when I'm in a position under somebody else to um, make sure that I, because I always will share my opinion um, and uh, I do work to think about how it's heard, but even when you have somebody who's always sharing their opinion and what they believe or what they see is wrong because they also see that something better is possible, um, that makes systems uncomfortable that are really set up to not change. And in ministry, I work in a lot of systems that talk a lot about change, but don't really want to change fundamentally. And so I work really hard to also be encouraging and ask for advice and help in places that feel authentic to make that those relationships work. Um, because I know how people, I know how people experience me. I think that's one of the things about an eight is that healthy self-aware eights really are not that, because the truth is that we don't really I don't feel like it's my job to make you feel comfortable. I, I don't like it when people don't like me, but I also don't see it as my job to make everybody like me. Um, you know, nobody likes it when other people don't like them, but I don't see it as my job to do that. And so, um, 
it comes from an authentic place of wanting to be in relationship and wanting to work with other people. And you can't just say, well, this is just me. So if you don't like it, get over it. That, that doesn't work for any number. So. If there is one last thing or one thing that you could tell the world or those closest to you about being an Enneagram eight that you haven't talked about yet, or an expanding of something that you've talked about already, what would that be? We're not as strong as we seem. Um, mm -hmm. We need tenderness and we need people to care for us too. And if we ask for it, know that it's been really hard to get up the courage to ask for it. And so be kind. <laughs> um, and because our motivation is that we, uh, our motivation is that we don't want to be controlled or manipulated by other people. And so what that means is that we put on the strong front that we've got everything. We don't need other people. And that is just not true. Um, we don't mean to be intimidating. I don't mean to be intimidating. Um, uh, know that if I say something or share something, I have probably workshopped it in my head um, multiple times before I actually share it because I want to be sensitive to how I present in the world. And I really believe if you wanna create change, if you wanna be in meaningful relationships, you do have to be mindful of how other people are receiving that. Um, uh, know that if we say what we're feeling and we're meaning, um, we we have we put it out there. There's no subtext. So if I say one thing, there's not another layer of what I'm really feeling. I, I don't mind telling you how I feel about something. Um, and sometimes I have to reel that in because not everybody is just waiting to hear my opinion on everything. Um, we provide a lot of safety to others. Um, I feel like I do that. Um, but know that we need to feel like other people are providing safety and care for us. And so, um, yeah, I, that those are, that's what I got. We're also bad at endings. Like we go all in and then we don't know how to taper down. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure I'd say this every single week that we've done um, stuff on the Enneagram, but I feel like eights, every number, but eights are such a gift to the world, right? Like things get done. Um, you all challenge the status quo. Uh, you keep people honest. Um, you, yeah, you care deeply in a way um, that other numbers do not as naturally, um, don't naturally care for, um, but you also act on it a lot, um, which is something that I, I appreciate about eights especially, so. Thank you for letting me interview you. <laughs> um, yes, yes. A little bit about um, how being an Enneagram 8 is um, affects the way that you interact with the world and the way that you see yourself and those around you. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I talked a lot in that. Uh, I covered a lot of ground in 8. So I'm going to talk a little bit generally before we move on to um, the uh to michael so what we've been doing if you're just joining us today is we've been doing kind of a teaching about this personality type and the motivation and the way that they see the world and see god and then we've had a shorter sermonette that 
helps us to see how God relates to that uh, and God's word to that. Um, so just a couple of quick things um, that, it's not working today, that's exciting. Uh, so our motivation, we've said it before now a couple of times, being harmed or controlled by others um, or the basic fear is to be weak or to lose. Um, the basic desire is to protect themselves and to be in control of their own life and destiny. One of the misunderstandings is that eights want to just be in control of everything. Um, and that is not true. It just is that, <laughs> I mean, truthfully, we could probably do a we see ourselves being able to do a lot better job in a lot of things. Um, but we also, we can assess a situation and see what needs to be done. We can look at the larger picture of a situation and come up with a strategy. Um, and, uh, and we don't mind sharing that. And so it's not that we're always looking for uh, an opportunity to control the world, um, but, but that we don't, if there's a void that we see, we're going to step up and, and step into that void. And so um, sometimes that comes across as wanting to take control of everything. Um, we want to be self-reliant and to prove our strength and resist weaknesses. Um, you know, each week we have tried to come up with, um, uh, let me jump ahead. I'm jumping ahead, Michael, um, to famous people. Um, so each week we try to come up with like famous people or characters. Uh, obviously, uh, Schindler was um, an eight. Uh, you saw that in uh, my favorite eight part is not only where he's creating the list and willing to give over all this money, but when he goes to the other factory worker and he's like in his ear and he's like, come on, you can do it. You can save some more people. Like that is the intensity of an eight. Um, and I love that. I, it's hard to see that um, in a healthy way. Um, most of the lists of famous people and characters that you might look at online, it's like any angry person there's ever been, any dictator, um, they're gonna be lumped into an eight. Um, the list, I've been listening to this book um, on uh, Audible, uh, Jesus and John Wayne or John Wayne and Jesus. It's talking about how we've gotten convoluted in America on how we see Christianity and to be this kind of Western cowboys, you know, uh, rebel kind of save the world, shoot first and ask questions later. And somehow Jesus has gotten all mixed up in that. And like all of the main characters that they're listing in our historical kind of progress to this point are all people that like in this list that I found online are all listed as eights. So eights can be those kind of folks that, um, uh, are, can be dictators or take over the world for, for bad, um, but they also can be uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr., Muhammad Ali, uh, Angela, Angela Merkel, people who lead um, for good and who use their power and their capabilities for good. Uh, we always like to put in some fictional characters. So if you're a Little Women fan like I am, uh, Joe March is an Enneagram 8. And from Disney, for all our Disney fans, um, we have Merida and Jasmine as Enneagram 8s. And you see in them like this desire to not be controlled. They don't want to follow convention. Um, and that is an Enneagram 8. Um, again, I would recommend really listening to 
um, the, the podcast. I talk about this a little bit. Um, I think Enneagram 8 females are um, misunderstood the most. Um, uh, Enneagram 8 males are often given leadership positions. We don't know what to do with our Enneagram 8 females. We're often, uh, we are given lots of different roles, different jobs to have. Um, and we're asked, uh, in Virginia, I was asked a lot to do a lot of different things, to solve a lot of different problems within the system. But I recognized that I was never going to be given a leadership position because I just wish to make people feel uncomfortable. And um, it's like those people that you respect for their work ethic and their passion, but you might not want to invite them to a dinner party. Um, and I'm not saying that I don't ever get invited to fun things or have friends, but like, I think that sums it up right there. And, and we're aware of that, which makes it hard. Um, it's, it's like when I'm not saying Hillary Clinton and not getting political here, but I'm not saying she's an eight, but if you remember when she was running for president, like we had one president who were like, we're so glad he doesn't care what people think of him and he just speaks his mind. But she just speaks her mind. I mean, that's a problem. Like she has no restraint. She's too emotional. Um, she's too passionate. Um, it was how we experienced some of the same characteristics in two people. And suddenly it became really important how likable she was. Um, I was in an interview in the last couple of years for a, a position leading a national organization. I had all the ideas, I had strategy, I could see the problems, I had a 10 year plan. Um, I'd met all of the challenges along the way, but in one of the final interviews, one of the board members uh, that was interviewing said, you know, one of the things that the predecessor always did was make us feel really cared for. What would you do to make us feel cared for? Because that's why I'm a part of this. And, and what I heard under that was, we don't experience you as warm and fuzzy. Um, and your predecessor was warmer and fuzzier. And, and I didn't get the job. Somebody who was very much like the personality of the person that had left got that job. Uh, and I, I know that this eightness was part of um, how they experienced me and, um, and part of why I didn't get that job. Um, uh, for an eight, too much of a good thing is not enough. One of the places I read said, they don't come with dimmers. Um, <laughs> I did like that, but I don't know that that's entirely true because um, one of the things I resonated with the most on the podcast that I shared was that uh, the gentleman who was being interviewed said, nobody in my life experiences the full me. There are parts of me that I tamp down with everybody that I'm with. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, that is really, that is really true for me. And I had never put that into words before. Um, uh, we also have a small circle of people that we trust. So if we trust you, um, if we really, really are in relationship and trust you, know that that's, that's really important to us because we don't let a lot of people in that circle. When we did sixes a few weeks ago, I, I quoted a, a podcast then where the uh, person being interviewed said that she didn't trust herself or didn't trust other people. She trusted her doubt. Enneagram eights just trust themselves. Uh, we trust ourselves first and then everything else has a lower ranking. Um, let me jump back real quick. I said this real quick in, uh, 
in the interview earlier, but in stress, we go to five, which means we become uh, more reflective. We can also close ourselves off and become obsessive about something. But it also means that maybe that uh, when we don't know what to do next, we stop and pause and maybe listen to other voices on something. Or we, um, I've been known when, I, when I'm facing kind of a crisis of like belief um, of like just sort of closing, not closing myself off, but, but really focusing and really learning all I can about an area so that then my decision becomes more informed. Um, in growth, we become uh, more uh, like a two. We are more giving and serving of other people. Um, and th that is part of, part of an eight is that we're very protective and we care about those that are our own. And so in two, we're more willing to put other people's feelings and needs ahead of our own um, in, in times of growth and health. Um, wings are, um, uh, seven and nine, so eight, seven, I said last week or two weeks ago when we were last together that I'm an eight wing seven. So we are known as, um, uh, we are more outgoing, energetic, fun, ambitious, impulsive, uh, sometimes reckless. Um, uh, these eights live life to the fullest and are the most energetic of all numbers and most entrepreneurial. Um, there's probably a reason that I left. This is part of why I left one full-time job where I didn't feel like I was making a difference and I didn't have a lot of opportunity to make a difference to working multiple jobs and creating uh, creating a path for myself um, with opportunity that I felt like I really was making a difference. Um, eight wing nines are more measured and uh, often more approachable and more open to cooperation over competition. Um, they're, um, there has been a season of life where I have not wanted to play board games with people because I would describe it that this demon would come from within me. Uh, even if we were playing Uno, once when I was working in campus ministry many years ago, this was when I was like, I, I need to tamp this down a little bit. Um, I was playing spoons with a bunch of college freshmen. And we both, me and a, a, a young freshman who was new to our ministry, um, went for a spoon in the middle at the same time that I did. Um, and this demon came up from inside me and I dragged, we were sitting in the hallway and I grabbed her arm and like dragged her with the spoon over to my side of the circle. And I thought, okay, this is, this is probably not healthy. Um, so for a long time, I just enjoyed sitting and watching people play games because I didn't like how competitive I got when we played games. Um, nines uh, gift nines have the ability to be able to see both sides of things. And so eights, when they take on that nine, are able to, to harness some of that energy and see both sides. All right. This is a really, that was really fast. Um, I'm going to play Michael. Michael has our sermonette for today. Um, if there's something we can learn from scripture um, or that God would want to say uh, to our Enneagram 8s, um, we're going to listen to Michael now. When I began prepping for today's sermonette, I instantly thought of several texts. I thought of multiple characters in the Bible. I thought about some of the powerful women uh, in scripture like Deborah or Miriam who led by their actions. I thought of the time that Jesus flipped over a table. I thought of the way that early church leaders courageously loved their neighbor. The way that they 
some tried to welcome everybody. It was this new way of living. There are really a ton of examples in scripture that mirror the quality of uh, healthy eights. Some of their healthiest qualities are scattered throughout um, our Bible. But there's one scripture in particular that stuck out to me with this. And it's from the prophet Amos. Honestly, most of the prophetic books have some form of eightness in them. Um, but I think Amos 5, 21 through 24, really highlights uh, what some um, highness of an eight is, what some gifts that they bring to the world. I think it embodies the eight's willingness and desire to act. That it's not just about talking about things or worshiping or anything else, but it's about action as well. This passage is Amos speaking for God. Really, it's quoting God. So in theory, this is a time where uh, God seems to be embodying the gifts that eights bring. So as we talked about somewhere in our personality, in our deepest self, uh, the mirror, we, we mirror the image of God. No matter what our dominant personality type is, we mirror the image of God. And I think this this verse shows it well for an eight. So here are these words from Amos 5. It's dramatic, so um, be ready for how angry God sounds and how annoyed God sounds. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Remember, this is God talking. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos or God, the character of God here in the story, is not holding back, right? Like, he's telling it as it is. It's, it's going to make people uncomfortable. How could it not? Imagine yourself in these hearers' shoes, right? So Amos is this prophet, and this is likely he's just going off and, read, like, talking out loud to a group of people that are there. So imagine yourself as a person of Israel. You, your family your tribe, your ancestors, your people, all your friends and family, you've been through a lot. That's an understatement to say that. But you're in this nice little period of peace, at least compared to what previous generations had or what you might have experienced a little earlier. There's no current military threat to your well-being. You have a king that has been there for several years, which is always a good sign during this time. You are doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like you're giving offerings, you're worshiping. You are doing what you're supposed to do, what is good and right. Things are looking good. Life feels good. It's Things are finally coming together. Then Amos comes into town and says all this. God despises your festivals. He rejects your offerings. God cannot stand to hear your music. These songs would have been from the book of Psalms, right? Like this, this is 
what they would have sung and chanted together. God doesn't want any of it. Like, what? We're doing good. We have what we need now. Things are peaceful. Like, it's okay, right? Amos thinks otherwise. And these aren't small things that Amos is talking about, right? Like, he's talking about the way that you worship. He's talking about the way that you gather with people and hang out. He's talking about the way that you give to God. These are central parts of your life. And Amos rips it up. God despises it all. It's a shock to the system. Amos is speaking to these people. Um, so Amos is speaking to these people, and they might have been a little comfortable where they were before, right? They might be a little apathetic. They may be a little too comfortable with where they are. They certainly didn't want their pots to be stirred. Their faith and their life are going good. But Amos knew the truth that if our pots aren't stirred a little bit, uh, we we probably are too comfortable. We probably aren't addressing things that we need to address. If it is always good and it's, it's great, if our pots are never stirred, we don't fully engage. We become complacent. We miss the point and the meaning. The people of Israel here, they've been doing the right thing in worship, right? The actual worship isn't the bad thing. They aren't doing things incorrectly, and that's why God is mad. It's because it's worship without action. Any ritual that we do without any meaning or action is pointless. And eights naturally embody what God wants in that respect. Eights, kind of like Amos here, often tell us what we don't want to hear, but things that we need to hear. As one commentator put it about, he was talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, they, the prophets, including Amos, they point to the ugliness that everyone else is tiptoeing around. So what does God want instead of what they've been doing? If they've been doing the right things, what does God want from them? What, is, what needs to change? Two things in those last two verses. Justice and righteousness. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A guy named John Holbert defined this righteousness, the way it's used in Hebrew here. He defines it in this way. He says, Righteousness is not determined by some absolute ethical norm. Righteousness is a quality of life lived in right relationships. Righteousness is a quality of life lived in right relationships, which is persons doing right for other people. That's what righteousness is, doing right for other people in right relationships. Israel's worship seems to simply be a smokescreen for the evil that was in their hearts, in their communities, it was this worship and this being okay and doing good. It was just covering up what was there. It was covering up what needed to be addressed, what needed to be talked about, what had to be talked about. 
I want to close with an illustration. Um, it's it's an illustration and a story it, that's really an invitation. It's about water and tubing down a river with some of my old youth. And so it seemed to fit the passage well to me, right? This this righteousness being a stream and ever-flowing justice and all of this stuff. So this uh, story seemed to fit. It was at the previous youth group that I led. We went tubing, and there were a couple of the youth that got freaked out once we got there. The river we were tubing on, very slow rapids. Honestly, nothing to be worried about in theory, but that doesn't mean there isn't some anxious uh, thoughts and worries still with them. These youth were timid. They were scared. They, they would go around every single thing that seemed to be maybe a little bit dangerous. They would try to, they would stop, they would put their hands in the water, stop, swim, go over, just so they avoided the hard parts, just so they avoided any rapid. Now, because of this, they got really far behind everybody else. And they were fighting against the current constantly instead of just letting the water and the tube do what it was going to do. They got stuck on a bunch of rocks that they wouldn't have because they wanted to go the shallow way. And that ended up meaning that uh, their butts hit the ground on rocks a lot more than other people. In their head, it was safer. In their head, it was better. But they weren't embracing the river. They didn't let it be what it was going to be. They didn't go with the stream. And because of their desire not to embrace these rolling waters, not to embrace the stream and the natural flow, they had a terrible time. They did not enjoy themselves at all. Yeah, they, I mean, they avoided some of the more intense parts. But in doing so, they missed the point. They missed the goodness of it. They missed, they missed the meaning out of it. So the invitation is this. Go out into the waters. Sit in the waters of justice. Let the waters of righteousness roll over you. Immerse yourself in it. And go with the stream. Allow it to overtake you and to lead your movements and your actions. May it be so. Amen.